0: Question show time! Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are on our channel, question pops in your brain. Just write it down. I'll gather them all up, and I'll answer them here. Uh, It's times like this that I am reminded that I do live in Canada and not in the Florida of Canada, like I always seem to say. So uh, it just stopped snowing, but it might pick it up again. So uh, here's hoping. Also, though, we've got three hummingbirds visiting our feeder today. So. Uh, hopefully one of them will make an appearance in the uh, in the episode as we go. Now stick around to the end. We've got a special guest answer again from the American Astronomical Society from James Davenport, who has his own YouTube channel. So stick around for that. All right, let's get into the questions. Micro Chandra, hey Fraser, how much time elapses before our microwave background radiation originating from the Big Bang turns into radio waves, the longer wavelength? Now, as you probably all know, right, the cosmic microwave background radiation is this sphere of light that astronomers see in all directions when they look out into space. And it is, of course, the light that was emitted by the early universe really at the moment that it could, when it had cooled down to the point that the universe was transparent uh, about um, you know about the temperature of like a red dwarf star, um, the light was able to escape and for the first time light could move around in the Universe. And now here we are, almost 14 billion years after that moment, and we're able to see those individual photons as they are escaping from the early Universe. Of course, the Universe has expanded now, and these regions are like 46 billion light years away from us, and the wavelengths of each individual photon have stretched out what used to be this dull red colour right at the beginning of the Universe has been stretched out by the expansion of the Universe into infrared and into microwaves and right now the wavelength the size of the wavelengths are about one millimeter and that's like like right actually on the edge between between microwave and into radio waves It's sort of like the beginning of the radio spectrum but over time as the universe continues to expand those wavelengths are going to get longer and longer and so in about 80 billion years the waves will continue to stretch out, and they'll be about a meter across. And that'll put them into the FM radio spectrum. And then about 140 billion years from now, the radio waves will be even longer in the tens of meters, and that'll put it into the AM radio spectrum. And then about 500 billion years from now, those first photons that were given off, by the cosmic microwave background will be one light year across each. And at that point, they will be undetectable, and any evidence that there was ever a Beginning to the universe will be stretched out so far that we and few or future astronomers—I hope we're here—I'll be on my third robot body by then—will um, not be able to see it anymore, and there'll be no evidence that the universe had a beginning in the way that that we now know, which is kind of sad. And you think like, oh, like that's an inconceivable amount of time, but think about red dwarf stars. You know, the longest-lived red dwarf stars are going to live for ten trillion years. And so they will absolutely live through this period when the time, when the, the knowledge of the, of the beginning of the universe fades away from our field of view. It's a pretty fascinating concept. Rob May. Good chill like always. I'm not sure if it seems like just me, but it seems like your views are dropping a little. Hope that's not true and I hope you get a big boost in subs soon. But I got a random question. If you could hear sounds, what we hear in space, and assuming sounds would dimute in volume, similar to Earth over a distance, how loud would it be? Don't worry about the views. In fact, I think the views are doing great. I think mean, we just had a video with Betelgeuse that got like 400,000 views. So everything's going great. Um, and it's still, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? I've been doing this for decades. I plan to do this for decades more. It's just about following my curiosity and sharing it with you. Now onto your question, the universe, obviously, is silent to us because there is no medium, there's no air, there's no water to transmit the sound. Because when you think about sound, it is just molecules bouncing into each other, and, and that's what transmits the sound across distances. No medium, vacuum of space, no sound. So even though the Universe could be screaming in all directions, we can't hear it. And so I did a little bit of research and it turns out that the universe would actually be screaming. It would be very loud. Um, And a good example of this is like, say the sun, if the, if the distance between us and the sun was air and the sun was the size that it is, and it makes the noise that it makes, it would be, you know, in a speaker, the size of the sun, it would be about the sound of about a hundred decibels here on earth, which is like the equivalent to an outboard motor. So if you had to listen to that sound for like eight hours, you would start to get hearing damage. So we would all have to wear some kind of ear protectors if we wanted to just live on earth because the universe around us would just be making all this horrible, loud noise. Obviously we would have evolved to not have ears or to be very, you know, to have built in ear protection. But still, it's incredible to think that 150 million kilometers away, the sun is could be putting out that kind of noise. It is that just an insane thermonuclear explosion reaction that is going off uh, right over there. So different things would make different amounts of sound depending on, on what they're moving through. But that's sort of like the, the most extreme thing that we would hear. John Hollerin. You say that as we observe other star systems, we will get a better idea of how planets form. How much of that can be done with simulations? My main concern is that most of our observing methods, such as occultation, star wobble, spectra, etc., favor massive planets near the star. The literature says star systems usually have larger planets in the center, with small ones on the outside. But how do we know that it's not just a result of our sampling methods? You're absolutely right, that right now we are detecting the outliers. We are detecting the low-hanging fruit of planetary systems, the giant planets that are orbiting really close to the stars, and so they are just yanking them back and forth um, and so we can detect the radial velocity. Or planets that are perfectly lined up and they're moving right in front of the star so we can detect that noticeable dip. But the planets that are less massive, that are farther away from the star, they're going to create less of a shaking back and forth the star, they're going to block less of the light, it's going to take longer and longer for them to block the light. So so there's going to be limits to how many of these planets can be discovered using those kinds of methods, but fortunately there are other techniques, and of course we did a whole episode about the hundred million planets that will be expected to be found in the next uh, 20 years, 30 years. Um, And so there's other techniques like astrometry, where you look at the star and watch how the star is like curving out a little circle in the sky and you can deduce the planets that are going around it. And of course, the most exciting method is the direct imaging method, where you just take a picture of a star, block out the light of the star and reveal the planets. And as the telescopes get bigger and the instruments get more sensitive, the skies of the planets that you can observe get smaller and dimmer And you can see more. But a lot of the simulation work and a lot of sort of the initial ideas right now are coming from some really exciting observations that are being done in the radio waves with the Alma Observatory. And we'll show a picture right now. You're looking at 20 baby solar systems, and this is not just like an artist's illustration, these are actual photograph taken by the Alma Observatory, which is in radio waves, but still. um, uh, It's an image, not a photograph. Um, and so what you're seeing is you're seeing the planetary discs around these stars. You're seeing the, the, the channels where the planets are orbiting around. And, and the more of these newly forming planetary systems that astronomers will be able to see, the more we're going to be able to just get a sense of of how they come together in different configurations. And so over time, astronomers are going to be filling in all the puzzle pieces. They're going to use all the different techniques to study all the planets in all those different configurations. They're going to be able to look at newly forming systems to see how they started, watch them as they transition into more mature systems, but it is a gigantic puzzle and Enormous mystery, and it's going to take a ton of time and work and research to tease out all the little pieces. So, this is going to take decades, hundreds of years to do like really good exhaustive science to understand how planets work in the universe. You know, what's your rush? We got time. Andreas K. Rasmussen, what does clearing an orbit mean? Pluto is not a planet because it has not cleared its orbit. But Jupiter has got asteroids in its orbit as well. Yeah, more than a decade ago, Pluto lost its planethood because it was decided at the International Astronomical Union that it, you know, under the new definitions of planets, Pluto didn't meet it, and so now it's a dwarf planet. And and, you know, it orbits the sun, check, it has enough gravity to pull itself into a sphere, check, but it hasn't cleared out the orbit around it of all the other objects and therefore not a planet. Um, and there's lots of people who will argue with that definition um, and would rather that Pluto remain a planet and then all the other dwarf planets, they can become planets too. Let's have a hundred planets in the solar system. I'm fine with that. Um, uh, but, but that definition, that idea. And so it's not about like there not being a single other piece of rock or ice in that region. It's about it being the dominant gravitational force in that region. So the Earth has asteroids that share its orbit roughly, but the Earth is more than 99% of the mass that is going around the Sun at this region. Same thing with Jupiter. Jupiter is the vast majority of the mass that is in that orbit, while Pluto is just one object among many that are all jostling around in that Kuiper Belt area. And so you can't just say that, that Pluto has grown so large that it has pushed everything else out. In fact, give Pluto billions more years, it could impact with other objects and grow to become a much larger object and clear out its orbit. And then maybe it would meet that definition. So it, but it's purely arbitrary, right? Like, like Pluto is just Pluto and it's not, you know, all the definitions that we put over top of it doesn't really change the fact that it's Pluto and it's awesome. Mike Danheim or if someone invents an actual warp drive only to discover in its first test that it wipes out the planet. So that comment was in relation to me talking about various ideas for the great filter, right? This idea that something happens in the future that that all intelligent civilizations go through and it wipes them out and it's inescapable that that no matter how well we prepare, no matter how much we try to prevent it, in the end, whatever that thing is, it happens to all of us, like, like stepping on Lego, right, you buy Lego, you're gonna step on Lego, you're gonna hurt your foot, it's inevitable. And it can't be avoided. No matter how hard you try, you will always if you have Lego in the house, you will step on that Lego and it is like a, you know, And it's the same analogy with an intelligent civilization. And this is the idea of the great filter. And what I sort of love about this idea is that whatever that thing is, if we can imagine it, and if we can imagine a way to prevent it, then then it's not the great filter, right? If we're like, oh, it turns out that we can imagine that if we continue building artificial intelligence and eventually that artificial intelligence will rise up and destroy us all therefore computers are banned right it's like in Star Trek the way the Romulans won't let it have any artificial intelligence or in uh, um, Battlestar Galactica where you're not allowed to connect your your navigation computer to your to the rest of the ship um, you know to try and prevent an artificial intelligence uprising right if you can prevent if you can anticipate what it might be then it can't be the great filter because some percentage of intelligent civilizations out there would have anticipated it. And then we would see evidence of them today or pandemic or, or whatever. And so the, the, the weird paradox, it's like a paradox within a paradox, the paradox of the great filter is whatever it is, is this event that could lie in our future that stops intelligent civilizations from exploring the universe happens all the time, 100% of the time. And it cannot be predicted. It's just a natural outcome from intelligence and raising your technology level. And it's sort of this kind of haunting, disturbing idea. And I'm sure you're going to think of you know plenty of ideas for why that can't be true. But then we would see aliens everywhere. The Fermi Paradox just goes around and around. All I'm saying is, if the Par- Fermi Paradox doesn't freak you out, then you haven't thought about it enough. List. Hey Fraser, why can't we put giant telescopes on ships? Oceans don't suffer from light pollution and the oil industry has pioneered deep sea offshore platforms to house such telescopes. Bunch of problems to trying to put a big telescope on the ocean, right? The first thing is is that, yeah, if you're on like some deep sea platform away from cities, but you're on a stable platform, you have to deal with the waves, which will be a Pain, right? Dealing with the waves and trying to keep your telescope stable and counteract that wave action. But the bigger issue is the fact that you are down at the bottom of the atmosphere. You're at like the worst place to try and observe the skies. Plus, you've got waves going around. They're going to be kicking up all kinds of water vapor into the air around you, which is, again, just the worst for telescopes. So, telescopes are happiest when they are high up above as much of the atmosphere as possible so that they can observe the sky with as little water vapor and as little of just anything that's going to get in the way. And there's sort of an interesting compromise with um, NASA has a an aircraft with a telescope that's built into the side of it, and it flies around and observes objects in space for hours at a time. And any bumps, any, any sort of problems in the flight, it's able to counteract that on the telescope. And it's a great compromise. Now you have the expense of flying this enormous airplane called SOFIA for hours at a time to be able to make these observations, but still, it's so high, it's so clear, it's one of the most powerful and sensitive observatories that astronomers have at their disposal. It's not quite as good as being out in space, but it's a nice compromise between being on the ground and being in space. But no, the ocean is like the worst place to put a telescope. Don't do it. Flash Cobra 89 how hard would it be to send out a radio signal from Earth in every single direction at the exact same time? Will we ever have the technology or capability to do so? Love the channel. Keep up the amazing work. I've got some bad news for you. Uh, or good news, um, which is that we are already doing this. We are already doing this all the time. Every time you turn on the radio and you listen to a radio transmission that's coming from some tower, it is transmitting the signal in all directions at once. Um, And air traffic control systems, they are transmitting all the time. They're just transmitting out into the air. Your cell phone is transmitting. Everything is transmitting in all directions. It's just that you're able to then pick up the signals that you want and listen to your radio. And these radio signals are expanding out in all directions from the Earth out into space. Now, fortunately, they are very faint, especially when you get really, really far away. Even to the closest star systems, those signals are so faint that it would be really hard to detect them. It's only when you beam a a, concentrated beam at another star system that you stand a chance of being able to send a really detectable signal. That said, uh, there is a gigantic telescope in the works called the Square Kilometer Array, and it's going to be used to help sort of you know observe the sky in radio signals. It's going to be one of the mega telescopes on par with the extremely large telescope and the Magellan Telescope and James Webb. It's going to dramatically change the way radio astronomy uh, gets done. That said, it's going to be so sensitive that it would detect our radio traffic signals out to about 100 light years away. So we have already been transmitting radio signals out into space and any alien civilization that's willing to put in the effort to build the kind of radio telescope that we're about to build would detect our radio signals, the leaked transmissions that are just happening. Now, over time, you would expect civilizations to leak less and less of that radio signal because it's kind of wasteful, right? You don't want to broadcast in all directions. You want to send a tight beam. You want to send information through fiber optic cable. But in the sort of medium term, we will be leaking all that radiation out into space. So good news. It's already being done for you. FICO. If every organism on earth descends from a single common ancestor, does this mean that today's earth is a good place to sustain life but not create life? This question was based on the Shadow Biosphere episode that we did a couple of uh, episodes ago. And and I think you're right that We know that we have sort of all of these different life forms now, and they have gone into every single niche to exploit all of the sunlight, all of the free energy, all of the water. If there's a place where there's some nutrients just kicking around, um, life will make its way into that area and exploit all the resources. So we have sort of like a, a completely colonized biosphere of all of the life. And so you can imagine any new life form that tries to Get a toehold here on planet Earth is going to be up against a just brutal competition from life forms which have already been existing in these ecosystems for billions of years and are just. You know, they're really tough and anything new is just going to be an experiment. And so I can imagine it would be really hard. The time for various experiments to be tested out would have been back in the beginning before all of the resources were gobbled up by the existing life forms. But there could be places which are so hostile to life as we know it, that might be a place where life as we don't know it, as we don't understand it yet, could be able to get a told and try to... Ex- exist in that niche. I mean, obviously, we look around and we see all these animals, we see birds, and we see giraffes, and we see um, human beings, right? We're all related. So all the big stuff is clearly all related. And now it's just a question of, is all the little stuff related? Could there be some place where there's some life form that, that we're not related to? But it would be really hard for it to try and get a toehold in what is already such a competitive environment. It's, it's a fascinating idea. William Johnson. In light of the novel coronavirus that we are experiencing, do you think that in the future we will have an interstellar world health organization? And do you think that containment and control in the future will work the same as now? This is such a good question, because, because the one of the big problems that hasn't really been thought of yet is that diseases going to and from the different worlds will get more and more dangerous. In fact, we could get to a point where a Martian can never come to Earth because the risk of infection is going to be too high. We have seen this happen many times in the past where explorers go to other countries and uh, unintentionally and sometimes intentionally release diseases into these populations, which spread like wildfire. We saw this with smallpox, with other diseases like that. And it's just because you know we're all human beings, so we all have the same disease vectors. But some of us have developed immunities to certain diseases, while others haven't. And so, if your body has not built up the immune system to be able to handle some novel disease, then your it's going to hit you a lot harder until the population builds up that immunity. And so if people live on Mars, and they live completely separate from Earth, and there's no way, no really carefully thought out way that we can try and help vaccinate each other and try to raise the level of of disease resistance in these different places, then you could get to a point where a Martian can never come to Earth because there's just too many diseases, any one of them could infect them and, and kill them. And in fact, there was a research paper that I read that went into this exact idea that, that if we aren't careful, we may get to a point where Martians can never come back to Earth, which is, uh, I'm not even sure how we would stop this or prevent this. Anyway, great idea. David Shannon. Question, love the show. So, why can we discover loads of exoplanets external to our solar system but struggle to find things in our own solar system, such as the so called Planet X or Ninth Planet? Shouldn't it be easier to see all the stuff in our own solar system? The problem with looking for objects inside our solar system is that they're not giving off their own light. You're having to depend on the reflected illumination from the sun, which is very far away from these objects as they're like really far out into the solar system. Well when we're looking at other planets, right? we're looking at a star, I mean you can see stars that are thousands of light years away with your own eyes. You can see the Andromeda Galaxy which is millions of light years away with your own eyes because it's giving off light. And so when we look at a star and we're watching for a planet to pass in front of the star and dim that star. like. That's doing all of the hard work for us. It's only with bigger and bigger and more sensitive telescopes here on Earth that we're going to be able to push farther and farther out inside our solar system. So it's not surprising that we see more of the universe that is outside of the solar system because it's giving off light than what we see here in the solar system. Horizon brave. Fraser, you imply that larger suns inherently have massively smaller lifespans than smaller suns. Care to elaborate or go into this? Great question. And to answer this one, I'm going to bring in another ringer. Uh, This is James Davenport, who has his own YouTube channel, but he is a working astronomer and uh, has a lot of great videos on his channel. And he was uh, great enough to answer this question for you.
1: Yeah, it's the it's one of the great like unexpected mysteries. Is that even though little stars, maybe twenty percent the size of the sun, uh, have way less fuel to burn, they live a long time. In fact, if you get down to like ten or twenty percent the size of the sun, none of those stars have lived long enough to die. They have lived the entire age of the universe. And and the reason for this is that the process by which they burn fuel, turning hydrogen into helium in the core of the of the star, is super temperature dependent. So the small stars burn very, very slowly. So they're using their fuel, they're, they're like, they're like a, a hybrid, they're sipping fuel very slowly over time. So for more massive stars, things that are five or even 10 times or more uh, the size of the sun, they get up to even 100 times the mass of the sun, they burn fuel incredibly fast in their cores. In fact, when they get up to around 10 or 20 times the mass of the sun, they kick into an even higher energy fuel mode that burns the hydrogen into helium incredibly fast. These stars will only live a few million years. So the irony is that by the time these massive stars burn all their fuel in their cores and explode, the small stars have just got into the main portion of their lifetimes. And so when you look at a cluster of young stars, you can either see the massive ones churning away, getting ready to die, and the small ones still forming, still trying to ignite the cores, or if you look at the older clusters, the big ones are all gone and the small stars will live almost forever. Alright, thanks James,
0: that was awesome, it was great hanging out with you at the American Astronomical Society meeting, and take a moment right now, go to James's channel, and subscribe. I promise you will enjoy all of the videos that he's done. Most recently, uh, he had a conversation with him and David Kipping, which was incredible, so I'll put a link in the show notes, I'll put a link like right here, and a link at the end screen, and you should go to his channel, and you should subscribe, and I'm sure James and I will do something else in the future. All right. Thanks everybody for asking your questions. I really enjoy this process, so again, as always, if question pops in your brain, write it down, I'll gather them up, I'll answer them here, and I'll see you next week.